you know, how could I have ever known that being autistic was part of it if I didn't know I had autism in the first place? So it, it was part of why I now say that I don't think I could have given informed consent if I didn't know if I didn't know everything about you know, my own state of mind, then how could I possibly give quote-unquote informed consent? You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. All right, Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, so good to have you here. So for those who aren't familiar with you, you are a detransitioner. And I'd love to start off with the basics. Can, you know, for anyone who's listening who isn't familiar with the term detransitioner, can you tell us what that means? Yeah, so a detransitioner is a person that underwent medical transition a gender transition, so from male to female or female to male, and then later down the road decided to reverse or halt their transition. So went back to identifying with the birth sex that they were that they were born as. Mm-hmm. So there's a few terms, and a lot of words are being defined as we speak right? Language is quickly evolving. I think before we started the interview, you were saying that even the word detransitioner, some people mean people who stop their medical interventions. But for you, it's stopping medical interventions and also changing how you identify as well, right? Yeah. So some people might say that they detransition because they stop taking hormones. But if they still identify as trans, Personally, I would say that they didn't really detransition. They just sort of either <laughs> you could either say they stopped taking hormones, or even if they if they stopped presenting as the, their target gender in in everyday life, you could say they just went back in the closet. They're not. They, mm. In my opinion, they didn't really detransition. Mm-hmm. I think detransition involves a psychological aspect as well. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. And what about the term desister? Yeah, so a desister would be someone who identified as transgender or non-binary for a certain amount of time, and then maybe also experienced gender dysphoria along with that. And then over time, they stopped. They decided not to identify with it anymore. But specifically, they never went through any medical treatment, so no hormones and no surgeries. Okay. So then to kind of map it all out, a trans person is anyone who identifies as trans. And within that, people have different degrees of medical interventions or not. And then for people who never had a medical intervention and stop identifying as trans, they would be called a desister. And then if they 
had medical interventions and stopped those interventions and went back to identifying with the birth sex, that would be a detransitioner. Yes, that sounds right to me, yeah. And then there are also people, like you were saying, who might stop taking hormones, but they still identify as trans. So I guess there's all kinds of reasons that people make different medical decisions. Could you share what are some reasons that someone who, let's say, started taking cross-sex hormones might change their mind? I actually stopped taking hormones five years before I consider myself to have detransitioned. So mm. I, I think I'm sort of unique in that way. Most people I know who detransitioned, they decided to detransition and they stopped taking hormones at the same time. I took, I stopped taking them. I, I identified as trans for, for 10 years and I stopped taking them five years in. And for the rest of that time, I identified as non-binary, but for all intents and purposes, I was living as male in day-to-day -day life. Nobody was recognizing me as female. It was more of just, that was what was in my head. But I stopped taking hormones for a couple of reasons. And one of them was that I had such a hard time sticking to the schedule. Hmm. So I had to take, I had to take a shot every two weeks, but the, the day that I would have to take it would roll around and I just didn't want to do it. So I would just put it off further and further and hmm. I would end up, it, it would end up being every three weeks instead of every two weeks. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, this can't be good for me. That's, this isn't what I'm prescribed. So I hmm. might as well just stop. And then the other part was that I just didn't care. I didn't care anymore. I didn't care about looking masculinized anymore. And I, looking back on it, I feel like that's sort of the beginning of realizing that I wasn't trans, but wasn't quite ready to commit to it at that time. It took much longer to actually decide that I was going to go all the way back. Mm -hmm. But I, I can give it like another reason. An another person might go off of hormones and mm -hmm. still identify as trans because of medical concerns, mm -hmm. I guess. So testosterone is a very powerful drug that raises your risk of getting heart disease or I guess your red blood cell count could go up, stuff like that. So there's other reasons that people might go off and still identify as trans. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of medical risk factors. We may or may not get into that in our conversation today, but it sounds like there are a number of trans people who run into those medical problems and decide that however it is that they identify or want to present themselves to the world that they just don't want to keep going through that medically. And in your case, it was a little both because, I mean, I'm just imagining that giving yourself injections is not fun. I know personally, I have a fear of needles and most people don't like pain. So it, it's very understandable to me that you would procrastinate on that and then question that you're, you're not following the doctor prescribed regime. I'm curious during that time while you were kind of on this hormonal roller coaster where you're supposed to be taking these testosterone injections every two weeks and then you're taking them more like every three weeks, what was your body going through? Did you notice the testosterone impacting your mood or other manifestations of your endocrine system? It's hard to say for me. I do know people uh, trans men that I'm thinking of, like at least one that I can think of where if they missed a shot, even the day after they would be um, starting their period again, for example. Mm -hmm. And that never happened with me. Like it, it, after I was off of them, it took weeks for it to come back. So I know we're, we're kind of diving into the middle of the story, right? And I, I at some point want to go back to the beginning yeah. and 
invite you to share your whole story. I think for this portion, as we're just explaining to anyone in the audience who's unfamiliar with what this stuff even is, you know, we're talking about one of the reasons for detransitioning being the medical consequences. And so you shared that you were supposed to take these testosterone injections every two weeks, and then you ended up taking them every three weeks. So you said that the whole time you were on testosterone, you didn't get a period. Right. Yep. And I knew some people that if they missed a shot, even just one day, they would get it the next day. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. So the question was about how that affected my mood and, Mm -hmm. and so on. And to be honest, I, I don't, I don't really know if it did. I was pretty mentally ill Mm -hmm. through the entire period. Still am, but it's getting better. So I think that I just didn't have a very good self-awareness of how my mood was changing all the time Mm. just because it was already very unstable. Mm. That makes sense. Well, maybe this is a good time to go to the beginning of your story. Sure. I started questioning my gender when I was about 21 years old, which is a little later than most people. But because it was in 2010, I feel like it is sort of, it was the beginning of the idea of being trans starting to ramp up a bit, especially on Tumblr. So I was on Tumblr a whole lot. And so that's that the idea was presented to me on not on Tumblr, but on a message board. And they were asking, you know, have you ever questioned your gender? And in I answered it by saying, you know, I'm a woman, I've never questioned my gender. And as soon as I submitted my post, I thought in my back, but in the back of my head, why not? Why haven't I questioned Mm -hmm. my gender? especially because I wasn't, I was a gender non-conforming child. Not, not extremely so, but like, I didn't want to wear dresses. Um, I didn't like wearing makeup when that eventually came along. I was sort of bossy and pushy and I liked running around outside and things that I guess are stereotypically unfeminine where people are like, oh, well, young ladies don't act like that. So at that time I was like, maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I do need to question my gender. Mm. And so for a little while before deciding I was going to transition, I identified as genderqueer, which is sort of like the precursor to non-binary. And, you know, one one evening I was just thinking to myself, you know what, I, th- I think that I'm going to have to go all the way. I think I'm not going to be happy unless I actually pursue a medical transition and, and go the whole the whole nine yards. And so within a year, I was on testosterone. So you hadn't questioned your gender until the question was posed to you at the age of 21. And you describe having been, I mean, could we say tomboyish? Yes, for sure. Okay. And if it's okay to talk about this, when you were growing up, how did people treat you as a tomboy, where you sent the message that that was okay or not okay? You know, as, as a child, I was bullied. I don't know if that had to do with me being a tomboy, but I, I did know that it had to do with me being quote unquote different. Mm-hmm. And I didn't figure out why that was until years after I started transitioning, which was that I had developmental disabilities. I have autism and ADHD, but when I was first questioning my gender and thinking back on it, that was what I was thinking. I was thinking, oh, these kids realized that I wasn't feminine enough. I was too masculine. Mm. It couldn't, it couldn't be anything else. 
Uh, mm. It all makes sense now, that sort of thing. So it's this like post hoc interpretation that there's there's yeah. so many ways you could have looked at your childhood and where the trauma of bullying, I don't want to say where it came from on your end because it's not your fault, but what are some things about you as a kid that made you vulnerable to being treated this way? It wasn't handled at the time. It wasn't supported. You weren't diagnosed uh, until mm -hmm. well into adulthood. And, but you had that painful experience of feeling different as a child. And so when this explanation was offered, it fit. And it appealed to you to, to be able to have a way to conceptualize why you'd always felt different. Exactly. And in, in retrospect, after I was diagnosed, and it even took a few years after I was diagnosed to really integrate that with my, my entire past and with my identity. What I called it in my mind was like the missing narrative. Mm. So when I was transitioning, I would look back on it and think, oh, this is why I was bullied in childhood. This is why I never fit in with the other girls, even though I didn't fit in with the guys either, etc. And when I finally got the diagnosis, it was like, oh, okay. So actually there was much more to the story than I had access to. And, you know, how could I have ever known that being autistic was part of it if mm. I didn't know I had autism in the first place. So it, it was part of why I now say that I don't think I could have given informed consent if I didn't know, if I didn't know everything about the, my own state of mind, then mm. how could I possibly give quote unquote informed consent? So. Mm -hmm. So when you were 21 and you were in these online forums and the idea of being trans was first presented to you. Was that comforting? H how did it feel to be able to give this explanation? I don't know if it's necessarily comforting, but right after I started identifying as, as genderqueer, I started looking into like buying clothes from the men's section, for example, and being able to completely issue any femininity and I could just tell people on, you know, well, I don't have to, I don't have to act that way because I'm not a girl. Mm. So for like in the two years before that, I would go shopping with my mother, for example. And if I tried to shop in the men's section, she would be like, why can't you just, you know, get something out of the women's section, something that's, you know, the same style but is in the women's section instead. And now I felt like I had the excuse. I could say, oh, well, I can shop in the men's section because I'm not a woman, it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, there was this kind of personal autonomy that came from it. Mm -hmm. So I guess that part was comforting, the, mm -hmm. the feeling like I had, I had the reason that I could do it. Mm -hmm. I know many folks with autism have shared that they never felt comfortable with the expectation to conform to gender norms. And, you know, when I, when I think about the stereotypical portrayal of a femme woman, I think about the high heels and the push-up bras and the, you know, the long fake nails and all that kind of stuff. And, and I cringe because it's so physically uncomfortable. Why would I do that to myself? And uh, folks on the spectrum 
obviously can have sensory issues that can make those types of physical sensations less comfortable, you know, even even less comfortable than they, they are for someone else. And also with autism, there's generally less, less of a care for presenting a certain way to the world and and perhaps less of an understanding as to why people play those games in the first place. So you didn't get the diagnosis of autism until well into adulthood. And I can just imagine during that in-between phase where you'd never connected with the expectations of presenting as stereotypically feminine that the genderqueer label gave you permission to let go of that pressure. Is that right? Or Yeah, no, it is. It's right. And it was it was interesting to me when I started learning about sensory issues as well. When I was doing the I did a psychoeducational assessment in order to get that diagnosis. And when I was talking to the psychologist, she brought up sensory issues and she was like, you know, did you ever have any any type of sensory issues when you were younger? And I thought about the fact that I didn't wear want to wear dresses. It wasn't necessarily because I didn't like dresses and looking feminine. It wasn't necessarily that I didn't like looking feminine. It was like lace on the dresses that mm-hmm. like aggravated my skin or, you know, dresses are often tight around the middle instead of just like completely mm-hmm. loose. It depends on the style, of course, but I found that was sort of the case with a lot of feminine clothing is it's very tight fitting. It's very close. It's Mm -hmm. very, and, you know, even wearing bras, it's all just very, very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in terms of sensory issues. It's it's Mm -hmm. super uncomfortable. And after being diagnosed, there was that sort of reframing of what I thought, oh, you know, I I didn't like any of these things because I just wasn't a girl. And reframed to oh no i just didn't like any of those things because of the sensory issues so i think you brought up a really important point when it comes to what the word comfort can mean this is something that i'm starting to explore with the gender dysphoric youth that i work with Um, when people talk about what feels comfortable for them to wear i think there's inner comfort and there's outer comfort so there's what's physically comfortable if nobody were looking and then there were no mirrors or cameras, what your body would want. And then there's the external comfort of how you feel about yourself when you look in the mirror or how you want other people to see you. And those can be in harmony with each other, but often not, you know, for for women or trans women who feel most externally comfortable in the hyper feminine style of dress, that still can't be physically comfortable on the inside. And then there's some people who feel like what's physically comfortable to wear is also a comfortable way of presenting themselves to the world. So I'm curious if you feel like that has been overlooked in conversations about gender dysphoria, right? The idea of what's comfortable for a person to wear. Do you think that people sometimes jump to the conclusion that if something's not comfortable for someone, it's because of the aesthetics and what that represents to the world compared to the possibility that maybe things just really aren't physically comfortable? I think definitely, especially when particularly in um, 
when it comes to people with developmental disabilities. So both ADHD and autism have sensory issues related with them. Mm. So, and I think there's supposed to be, depending on where you look, the percentage is anywhere from 30% to 50% of, of young people that are presenting with gender dysphoria have either ADHD or autism. Wow. Um, so I, I think that is a big, a big part of it. The, ex- the external comfort for me was also a factor because uh, when I was, when I was a teenager, I had sort of a phase of, of trying to be feminine. So around like, I'm going to say 16, probably I started hanging out at like, it's um, <laughs> not the most feminine place to hang out, but arcades. So I would go to arcades with friends who were almost like have a a core group of of girlfriends that went with me but when i went to like video game tournaments or whatever it's it's more than 90 percent male they're all there to to play games and i think being around all of those males at the time there was sort of maybe there's a part of me that was just like oh maybe i should try exploring this femininity thing that's it feels like that's something that i should look into i guess Maybe it would make these people like me more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so I went through a phase of that. And I just remember any time that I wore a skirt, if I was in public, I was just almost hyper aware of where it was at any time. And I think that that's part of the ex- the external discomfort of other people looking at you. And, you know, I, I had friends that were with me that who regularly wore skirts and they would get unwanted attention from older men and and so on and so that certainly comes into it as well so as a teenager you're trying to make sense of all that and you're still experimenting and you talked about how at 21 was when you started identifying as genderqueer and you said that you were a little late and i would add late compared to today's youth but you also said that was 2010 um but also we know with autism uh, and even ADHD that folks can be late bloomers. So maybe some of the things that you were going through developmentally at 21 in terms of forming an identity, maybe some other people would go through earlier. And so when you were in that stage of adolescence, when people around you seem to be developing some degree of confidence about what their social role is and what their style is, I can imagine that on top of the normal feelings of being lost and confused that most people have at that age, that 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 would be heightened by the undiagnosed autism. Yeah, I think so. I just note that um, I think if I was born 10 years later, I would certainly be identifying as trans as a teenager, mm. for sure. The, the idea just wasn't out there at that time when right. I was a teenager. I did have... Thinking back on it, when I was a teenager, I did say to one of my friends once, and because I just remember this very clearly, because it was one of the things that I I took as meaning, oh, I'm really trans. When I was starting to question, I did say to my one of my friends, I would get a sex change if I could afford it. They're so expensive or whatever, and you know that didn't come with any true understanding of what a sex change was in my head. It was you know. Uh, a perfect surgery where it would be you'd be indistinguishable from a male and if you if you look at what is available for female to male 
transgender people, it's it's nothing like that. You can definitely tell that it's it's not a not a real working penis. There was that part of me that clearly did not feel comfortable with with womanhood, and there was a part of me that thought maybe, you know, maybe it would be more comfortable in being a man instead. And I did have like, um, I think I don't know if it was the same day or it was a, probably around the same time. I once like went to my mirror and like quote unquote cross dressed, where I was like wearing cargo shorts and t-shirts and I got a baseball cap and tucked all my hair in and I think I even got like an eyeliner pencil and sort of like made a beard and then like rubbed it in so it looked like I had a five o'clock shadow and was just like looking in the mirror and I was like 16 mm-hmm. and I made like an alter ego of, of myself and named named him and that was just sort of like a very very short phase in me being 16 or 17 and I only told a couple people within my group and then one person in my group like got very weird about it. So I just stopped talking about it entirely. But if I had a real understanding or not even a real understanding, because I don't think there's a real understanding of what trans means out there. But if I had the understanding of what the mainstream understanding of transgender is now, I would have transitioned. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because uh, presumably, yeah, part of the other reason was that, you know, I was in a Catholic school and it wasn't very open and inviting to mm. not even to gay, not even to gay people. Mm-hmm. So there were, there was nobody who was out in my school. Assuming that the whole culture was different and the knowledge of being transgender was completely different than I would have transitioned as a teenager. But mm-hmm. anyway, went off on a tangent there. No, I mean, I, I think it's important to reflect on these things. And one of the reasons that I've taken an interest in this issue is I realized the same thing for myself, that if I had grown up and had more or less the same childhood and adolescence, but taking place in this day and age with the current narratives, as well as the current technology around gender, I absolutely would have said that I was trans and who knows what kind of medical interventions I would have pursued and who knows where I would end up today. I have a lot of the traits that I think would have predisposed me to feeling like this was an explanation for my problems. Um, We do know, of course, that a lot of people who identify as trans are gay or sexual minorities. And that's probably the one trait that I don't have as a straight person, but I think everything else about me, you know, I too was bullied. I too was different. I would have loved the opportunity to take shelter as part of a group that was special and protected and offered me a sense of belonging and an explanation for my differences and an excuse for not looking or dressing or fitting in a certain way. I mean, there's just so many things, so many boxes that would be checked for me. And I think a lot of folks who are, let's say, cis het adults, or you know, cisgender of any sexual orientation, but a lot of adults who are not trans, who are doing their best to support what's called trans rights currently, I wonder how many of them have actually asked themselves if I were growing up in this era with the current narratives and technologies about gender and the childhood that I had, 
would I think that I was trans? Because I think a lot of folks assume, oh, I never had gender dysphoria, so I just have to listen to the experiences of people who do. But they leave out that piece of what is the social climate that defines the opportunity to even think about gender dysphoria. And in your case, you didn't have gender dysphoria per se. You were an autistic kid who got bullied and you weren't diagnosed and you never fit in and you didn't perform femininity a certain way. But you didn't have a particular explanation for that until this idea was presented of have you questioned your gender and then you go, hmm, good point, maybe I should. And then there's a language for it. So can we pick up from that point in your story? I know we've we've explored a lot just in adolescence so far, but you were starting to say when you were 21 in 2010, you started to identify as genderqueer. And what happened from there? Yeah, so I, I actually started questioning in 2009, but I went on testosterone in 2010. So that's, I usually make that my starting point. So after I decided to myself, you know, I am... And I think what I, I, de- I decided I identified as FTM, which was, m- it was more common to hear people say that instead of trans man back mm-hmm. then. And I also would like to say that I think part of the n- not calling myself a trans man is that I was still uncomfortable with the word man. And I do hear, I do hear that actually a lot from, from trans people saying they, they don't really identify as a man or a woman, they prefer to say that they're a boy or a girl. Hmm. And I, I do think that that's sort of, they're more comfortable saying I'm a trans boy, or I would say I'm a trans guy instead of a man. Hmm. And I, it, I, it was almost a way of not fully committing. I, I said to myself, oh, I, you know, I think I am, I am FTM transgender. I, I think I'm going to go forward th- with transition. So in the next six months, I came out to people, I came out to my family in the spring of the next year. So this spring 2010, I went to a trans support group and it was for people who were still thinking about whether they were going to transition. So most of the people there hadn't decided, although some of them were on hormones or were about to get on hormones. But anyway, so everyone in that group was provided with lots and lots and lots of information and you know i've thrown it all away now but i used to have all of the information i got from that group in like a a file folder in my bedroom for a really really long time it did offer lots and lots of information and one of the things it offered was like this page of uh, not page uh, a pamphlet or a booklet basically of 40 questions to ask yourself before transitioning that was mm-hmm. supposed to help you in looking back on it, I feel like a lot of those questions were very leading. They It would ask like things like, what do you think a man is? What are you uncomfortable with about being, about being male or female? Or what do you think would, what do you think you would achieve if you transitioned and stuff like that? And what I would ask myself in retrospect is more things like, do you understand that the world will not see you the way you see yourself and mm. things that are a little more hard hitting than what I was offered. Mm. But anyway, while I was in that support group, the two facilitators were trans themselves. They were therapists. And during that period of time, one of they, they said one day that they knew of a clinic 
that was willing to prescribe, not specifically testosterone, but hormones. They were willing to prescribe hormones. They wanted one female and one male patient because their resident doctors needed experience with, with transgender patients. And so they were asking if anyone in that group wanted to take that opportunity. And so me and I assume someone else from that group did so. I had a one-on-one session with one of those facilitators. He wrote my letter and that is how I got on testosterone. After I had the letter, I used that letter to go to the clinic to, to speak to them. There were three appointments before I was on testosterone. So you so are that's how it started. one of the first people in your area. And this is Canada, Toronto? Yeah, this was in Toronto. So you were really one of the first people to receive these sort of experimental treatments at this clinic in the informed consent model without going through yes. the requirements that had previously been that a person would have to go through before getting those medical technologies. For anyone else that doesn't know, I didn't go to a gender clinic specifically. I went through a general practitioner or like a primary care provider, basically. They did specialize in in trans care in in that they were known to the trans community to be trans friendly. And so there were a lot of trans patients there. They weren't like gender specialists. They were just doctors that had specialized in gender. Mm -hmm. Um, For for anyone that didn't know, before that period of time, and most of the people that I knew that were transitioning during that time, they had to go through the gender identity clinic. And there was only one in Toronto at that time. And the whole process to go through that involved being on a waiting list and having to go through all these interviews, assessments, There were also like regressive parts of it where, you know, your name had to be sufficiently masculine enough or sufficiently feminine enough where they didn't think that you were a good candidate. And I knew, for example, trans women that were turned away for wearing pants to their appointments. It was very silly. Wow. Um, So, you know, I don't necessarily think those were a good it wasn't good. It it was that was gatekeeping in, in a wrong way. I, I feel like there's a good way to do safeguarding, and this just wasn't the way to do it. Mm-hmm. But I think there was. I think there might have been like a psychological assessment. I didn't go through that process. I'm not sure, but it was a much more gate kept process. It was a much longer. It involved something called real life. Um, I don't remember the whole term, but you you needed a real life experience. You had to live as your target gender for two years before, I think one year before hormones, two years before surgeries. And so I wasn't, I wasn't required to do any of that. Had you so previously I, been on that said, waiting list? Yeah. No, I never went on the waiting list. I was thinking about it. Uh, I think that that was part of being in the support group was thinking about whether or not I was going to go on the waiting list. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had a ref- had a referral. My therapist, I had a regular therapist at the time, and she gave me a referral to someone there. And I remember m- my mom even gave me a referral to, she gave me a name of someone. This was at um, the CAMH Clinic, so Center for Addictions and Mental Health in Toronto, which is where the gender identity clinic was, but I never saw anyone there. 
If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. You said your mom even gave you a referral. I was curious to know earlier in your story as well, how did your family respond to your process with gender? So I wasn't in the house when I came out, so I'm not I'm not fully sure how they took it in in that sense, but when I first told I told my mom first, I wrote a letter and I gave it to her and then afterwards she said Basically, she said she didn't believe me. She said something like, um, you know, I, I can't believe that you you feel like you're male now when just a couple of years ago you were happy shopping for a prom dress, mm-hmm. which, you know, I don't think that was the best thing to say because it, it was so stereotypical, mm-hmm. um, I think. But, you know, she, she didn't know. I don't blame her for it. Something that might have worked better was like, you never felt like you were a male when you were a child, even though you were masculine or a tomboy. But mm-hmm. anyway, so it was sort of a, a disbelief sort of thing. And the reason that my, I believe the reason my mom was able to give me a name of someone is because I believe, I don't know if it was both my parents, but definitely my mom, I think both of them at some point, but they were attending a support group themselves for parents of transgender children. I I don't think that anyone there was really challenging the idea of being trans. I think it was more parents coming together to learn how to accept their children as trans. And I know a lot of the parent groups, at least the parents that I've spoken to these days, a lot of them are just like, I'm not sure that the doctors are doing the right thing, et cetera. And I think when they were in that group, it was more well, this is how, you know, I know it's difficult, but we have to learn how to accept our children for who they are. Mm. So they weren't really getting, I don't think they were getting any pushback, really. They weren't pushing back. They were just sort of processing it. But I think through that group, she got the name of someone at that clinic 
that the she said that the transgender community liked the specific doctor and so i guess she thought that that i would be willing to go see him and i think i was willing to go see him but i think it just never happened because i was able to get that referral to the clinic in toronto mm -hmm. that was willing to prescribe hormones so sounds like your parents were trying to do the right thing and so this opportunity came up to be one of the first people at this clinic with this informed consent model, skip past the waiting lines, skip past some of the barriers. And what initially appealed to you about that opportunity? I don't have, I don't have a, the way I'm going to say it just is going to sound childish because it was, but it was because I, I wanted what I wanted. And what was appealing about it was that I was going to get what I wanted as, as soon as possible, faster than other people were able to get it. And so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm lucky in order to do this. I'm lucky to be able to get past the lines and mm -hmm. go around, not have to deal with whatever, what everyone else is dealing with. You know, I'm going to be at a progressive clinic, basically. Mm. That sounds very human to want what we want. Plus also very 21-year-old and also very ADHD. I mean, those are, those are all things mm -hmm. that make us want what we want. And what did testosterone represent to you at the time? It was the ability to pass is what I wanted, was to not be seen as female anymore. So in the year, maybe I'll just give a little bit more background, but from the time that I was 18... I think it was before 18, 17 to about age 20, I was in a relationship where that was just sort of my my whole world. It wasn't a very good relationship. He was very emotionally abusive. And, you know, I would try to, there was probably about three times I tried to leave the relationship where he said that he would kill himself if I, if I left him. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very, it was a very difficult relationship to be in and very controlling and, he was a very jealous person, didn't want me to have any friends that were guys, for example, couldn't have any guy friends. And even if I like went over time on spending time with my girlfriends, he would get mad that I wouldn't show up when I said I was going to, stuff like that. So coming straight out of that relationship and I identified as gender queer within a year from that, mm. I feel like was sort of me getting my autonomy back. Getting your autonomy back. Yeah. I think that's really interesting to explore if that's okay. And I appreciate that you're sharing about abuse and that's it's not easy to talk about this stuff. So definitely look out for your comfort level. I mean, you're in this abusive relationship right when you're coming into adulthood, ages 17 to 20. That's such a vulnerable time. And having experiences like that can can feel like such a huge setback when you're trying to launch yourself into the world. And obviously that was a traumatic experience in a complex way. So what was it about claiming a different gender status that felt like a that felt like it gave you autonomy after coming out of an abusive relationship? When I was in that relationship, he didn't he didn't want me to look feminine, actually. 
which was sort of like a weird part of it was that he didn't I in looking looking back on it of course it's because he didn't want other people to be attracted to me right I think I don't think it was because you know I would wear makeup and he's like well you know who do you need to look pretty for that kind of thing and I'm just like for myself but so I, I was living with him during that time and then when I stopped living with him that was sort of the beginning of sort of reclaiming the autonomy and then I think adopting the new gender identity was another part of it being like oh well this means that I can dress the way I want and act the way I want and not have to fit these expectations Mm. but then after I started identifying as like after I decided I was going to transition in the year after that before I got in test on testosterone, I had a couple of incidents because um, I was living in Toronto by that time. I had a couple of incidents that made me extra uncomfortable, basically. So I had one incident where I was on a bus and I could hear, I think these were teenage boys that were talking. It sounded like they were talking about me and it sounded like they were just discussing whether they couldn't tell whether I was male or female. And they were just discussing it out loud. And like, I turned my head and someone said, oh, it's a girl, I told you. And like, so something like that sort of spurred me towards, you know, if I transition, then I'm going to pass better. And then I'm not going to have to hear stuff like this anymore. And another incident was I was walking home. I had walked someone, one of my friends to a bus stop and I was walking home at one in the morning. And... Uh, I had short hair at this time. I identified as as male. And even so, someone in a taxi, a man in a taxi, pulled up. Um, he wasn't the one driving. He was in the backseat. He pulled up and was like, hey, do you want to ride home? Blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. It's really cold out. And it was really cold out. And in retrospect, I think the reason I went along with it was probably partially from being autistic, a lot of autistic people have like a diminished sense of what is safe. Mm. So that's unfortunate. But I got in the taxi with him. And then he started asking me all of these very, very uncomfortable questions. And, you know, part of me was like, he's wearing a suit, you know, he's a businessman, he's not gonna do anything weird to me, etc, etc. And he did anyway. Luckily, I was only like around the corner. And I think the other reason I got in is because there was a taxi driver Although someone told me later he could, the taxi driver could have been his friend, you know, you know, you, so I know in retrospect, I made a bad choice, but anyway, during that time in the taxi, he was like, you know, do you want to go party with me somewhere? Blah, blah. And I was like, ah, no, no, I don't. Mm -hmm. And then after a few more questions, he's like, you, you don't want to have sex with me. I'm like, no, (laughs) no, I don't. And you know, at that time I identified as asexual and I don't know why I told him that. It was a bad idea. I told him that and then he started asking me all these questions about whether I masturbated and so on and so on. And it was very bad. And I think incidents like those where me not passing, still looking like a woman or looking in between and being targeted by men or being targeted by people for not abuse or or bullying really, but like people talking about me or et cetera. I think that is what really made me want to go on testosterone faster was to like get out of that in-between androgynous stage and be seen as a male so that these people would just leave me alone. 
Did it feel unsafe to be female? Yes, it did feel unsafe to be female. Earlier, you said that one of the questions that would have been helpful for someone to ask you when you were talking about the 40 question list was, do you understand the world won't see you the way you want to be seen? Such a powerful question because it kind of confronts what in some cases might be the primary hope of someone seeking a gender transition is to be seen a certain way. So more the external perception. And in retrospect, you realize that maybe that's not a realistic hope, or maybe it puts someone in a really fragile position if that's what their hope is hinging on. And so you were in a time when you wanted this, you wanted the world to see you as male, partly because that made you feel safer than being a female, as well as some other reasons. So at that time, you had this hope that you'd be seen as male. And in retrospect, you wish that someone had talked to you about, what if that's not ever going to happen? What if you go through whatever hormones and surgeries and people still perceive you as a woman or are trying to figure out what you are? And what would that have been like when you were that age to be confronted with that possibility or that question? See, when I think about me back then, I think I just would have rejected it, unfortunately. But I, I wish that someone had at least put it into my mind. So I can sort of like segue into social justice with this because I was so I was so part of social justice culture, especially on, on Tumblr at that time, that, and I, what I see in a lot of people who are in social justice now is that they see the world the way that they think it should be instead mm. of the way that it actually is. Mm. And I think that a lot of trans people get caught up in that where if someone says to them, like, you know, or even if they say to each other, I'm, I'm always going to be a man or I'm always going to be a woman, you know, you know, and this is making me so upset and so uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera. They need to come to terms with that rather than try and change the whole world so that the mm-hmm. whole world sees them as a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I would have preferred someone pushing me in that direction mm-hmm. of, understanding that I can't control how everyone else perceives me. Mm. That was the main, you know, that's the main reason so many people transition is because they're trying to control how everyone else sees them. Which is so vulnerable. What you're Mm -hmm. saying reminds me of a, a quote, I think it's by the Dalai Lama, but I'm not sure. And it's something like, it is easier to put on a pair of shoes than to cover the whole world in leather. It, it speaks to the lack of resilience, I think. Lack um, of resilience? Which, yeah, I see that a lot in, in social justice culture is, mm. is very much the entire world is the problem, therefore I don't need to change, or the entire world is the problem. And, you know, if we just keep acting like the world is something different than it, what it is, then maybe we're going to get towards it. I'm going to get towards that idealized version of what the world is. It seems like a, a very cynical narrative and and sort of a 
a hubristic narrative, right? This this idea that I know better, me and my people, my fellow social justice warriors, we know better than everyone who's come before and everything that's created the world as it is now, which is obviously not just one thing. It's a complex multitude of, of things that make up the world. But it's this idea that everyone else has got it wrong. And me and my friends, we've got it right. And everyone else needs to listen to us. And, and it's also so vulnerable to place one's mental health in that position where it's contingent on not only external factors, but grandiose aims, really impossible aims, because other people will never conform to your wishes. But there's sort of the sense that I can't have peace in my life. I can't have health or equilibrium. I must be a victim of my own rage until the world changes. Right? And, in, and in psychology, you know, if you take that far enough, you get personality disorders. And personality disorders are really entrenched forms of, of mental illness that are, that are harder to overcome, right? So, so we don't want to encourage people to develop personality disorders. We want to help the people who have personality disorders to get unstuck from those deeply entrenched painful ways of living and especially from the externalizing behaviors that can come from that, the, the habit of blaming and attacking. And so I, you know, as a mental health clinician, I, I see this, this kind of very external based narrative of everyone else is the problem and I am justified in all of my problems and in all of my anger and in all of my attempts to control other people because I'm right and the rest of the world is wrong. It's, it's perpetuating black and white thinking and it's perpetuating sort of digging one's heels in to a stance of avoiding self-care, avoiding introspection. And I'm just concerned that especially people who are doing this early in life are sort of setting themselves up for personality disorders, which are huge risk factors for mental health. Right? And I think the, the goal of therapy is, is not to over-identify with a diagnosis or with a narrative that brings you pain. Anyway, there's a lot to say on that, but I just wanted to comment on the, the vulnerability of the mental health of anyone who, who believes that their well-being has to hinge on a set of ideal circumstances that really can never come about. And that's just one pocket yes. of the social justice conversation. I think, I think there was a different direction you were trying to go uh, when you brought up social justice. I was just going to comment that I myself, when I had the psychoeducational assessment, the psychiatrist, not psychiatrist, psychologist did say that I met the criteria for borderline personality disorder. Mm. Although she was saying that mostly on based on what my, my therapist had said. So my therapist and my psychologist were working together on that. And both me and my therapist had thought that I met the criteria for it. I don't think I meet the criteria for it anymore. Congratulations. Um, I think that I was much, <laughs> I think I was much closer to meeting the criteria back then. Mm -hmm. So I had a roommate for the last three years of when I was still identifying as trans and he was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder mm. and had more of 
the classic presentation of being borderline. When I was diagnosed with it, sort of diagnosed, they said that it was like the quote unquote quiet presentation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the destructiveness was internalized and his was a little bit more externalized. So, you know, getting very angry and sort of like switching very, very quickly and Mm -hmm. suddenly hates you. And then two hours later is a completely different person, that sort of thing. Um, And after he detransitioned, I saw um, him do like a complete 180 where he was completely different. So I do think that sort of being in that space of feeling like you can control everyone and, and constantly wanting everyone to meet your ideal world and and so on i think that does really contribute to Mm. really unhealthy coping mechanisms in the sense that you can't be okay if other people aren't being a certain way yeah and exactly one of the features of bpd is an unstable sense of self identity self-image and it's not hard to imagine how gender ideology and the idea that you could be all these different options and that not only could you be any of these things, but that that you might consider going to great lengths to shift your identity and how you present to the world and how you're perceived. And then there's also the impulsivity piece that comes with BPD and and that comes with ADHD, right? And you're saying that you have this ADHD diagnosis. We do know that treating ADHD can help mitigate BPD symptoms because of, you know, helping with impulse control and long-term planning and emotion regulation and things like that. So it's it's a very complex clinical picture that you're describing, but I'm really curious about your journey whether whether we're going to get into this at this point in the conversation or later. I'm really curious about your journey of um developing insight about all of these things and what traits of borderline you did have in the past and then how you feel like you overcame those and got to a more stable place. I don't know if you want to go there now or if you wanted to pick up with your story chronologically. No, this isn't okay to time to go into borderline. And weirdly, like when I was a teenager, I thought I might have borderline. And I think... I've heard it said that, you know, people don't really get diagnosed with personality disorders until they're adults. But the reason that I looked into it as a teenager is because I started Mm self-harming. So I was a cutter when I was in, when I was a teenager and continued self-harming in that way and in different ways, probably until maybe three or four years ago. So that was sort of a big one. I I know that um, I can't remember what part of the diagnostic criteria that is, but it's any type of self-destructive tendency with mm-hmm. that. And I know with some people it's sleeping around and with some people it's just any any form of uh, weird different forms of, of being mm-hmm. kind of self-destructive in that way. But the impulsivity was part of it too. I also wanted to add that I read, um, I read a book that sort of presented this theory of how borderline develops as being two parts of it, where one part is 
sort of a natural tendency to be emotionally reactive. And I think anyone who's neurodivergent is got that natural tendency, but there are also mm-hmm. other people that are just highly sensitive. So that's one part of it. And then the other part of it is what they called an invalidating environment. Right. And I feel like a lot of people who have borderline are are neurodivergent and have complex trauma. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's just sort of the main it to me that feels like the sort of on the, almost the main presentation of it is right. growing up neurodivergent and having everyone not be able to understand who you are and mm-hmm. so constantly invalidating you and being mm-hmm. like oh you know it's it's not that bad it's it, th- those kind of things right. where their experiences are being downplayed i think that has a tendency or at least the possibility of growing into a personality disorder right in your case, there was bullying, and then there was the sort of, I don't know, I hesitate to use the words gender nonconformity, because it, it implies that we live in a world where everyone is expected to conform to these norms, and I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that narrative. I actually think we live in a pretty free time. But, I mean, obviously, you were different as a kid, and so you had that invalidating environment and the complex trauma and the highly sensitive temperament. Are you familiar with mentalizing therapy? It sounds familiar, but I wouldn't be able to um, define it. I'm just thinking about the link between autism and BPD, right? So we know that people who are autistic have a harder time mentalizing or imagining something from a different person's perspective. And what I've noticed is that people with autism who train themselves to do this are excellent at it, like way better than average. I had an autistic client once who would interpret every little gesture I made because he had taught himself like a science of how to interpret body language, right? And I've also met some autistic people who are really, really fair-minded. And and once they learn how to think from another person's perspective, they can do it with incredible equilibrium but it's there's like a different route a different mechanism for getting there that's more conscious and deliberate and kind of academic or logical compared to the more kind of intuitive social emotional development that happens with a neurotypical person that's their pathway toward empathy and theory of mind so with bpd as well theory of mind or the ability to mentalize is impaired. And there could be a number of different reasons why it's impaired, but one of the treatments for BPD is mentalizing therapy. So helping a person with BPD strengthen their ability to form a consistent internalized image of another person and the ability to conceptualize why other people do what they do in a way that helps to relieve the black and white thinking, right? Because we know that one of the features of borderline is switching, right? So the brain Mm -hmm. kind of categorizes into all good and all bad. And it's difficult to hold both at the same time. So when someone you love does something that you don't like, the borderline brain at its worst goes from I love you to I hate you or "You're, you're great to you're evil. And part of the process of overcoming that is this mentalizing, this ability to 
have a more accurate picture in your mind that you've internalized of that other person that includes their positives and their negatives without having to switch. So I'm imagining that with autism and a BPD diagnosis, perhaps that would be a connection. And I'm wondering if you feel like you feel like you've overcome the BPD. And I wonder is well, first of all, is what I just described something that was a problem for you? Because it's not necessarily always the main problem with people who have BPD. But do you feel like you have strengthened your ability to mentalize or conceptualize other people in a way that helps reduce that black and white thinking? Yes. And I, I do think it was a problem for me, but it was specifically a problem in the context of sort of like a social justice thing. Mm. And so, for example, if you use the wrong word, then immediately everything that you, it doesn't matter whatever, anything else that you've done, if you use that word, suddenly you're a bad person unless you immediately apologize and, mm. you know, you know, beg for forgiveness, basically. Right. Um, and, you know, that's that's what we see a lot with, I guess, what's called cancel culture now, mm. where the the community of being part of in the, within social justice is very it, it's very punitive so sort of like a purity culture where there's very there's specific standards that you have to meet and if you don't meet the standards then you're a bad person and mm. stuff like that and i i think that really does encourage traits of personality mm. disorders to come out mm -hmm. so that's definitely how it seemed for me where it, that's how it came out for me where I had, I would say I had problems with like classmates when I, I had people who I was in class with and I added them to Facebook and if they said something wrong, then, you know, I would sort of fly off the handle kind of mm. thing online and mm. then it was awkward in the classroom afterwards mm. and I had interactions with family members, both online and in person where... I wasn't willing to see their side of things and, and so on. Mm. So that was definitely something that was an issue for me. Mm. And what made me sort of switch was people talking about how that kind of culture and that response to people was, it was almost creating more trauma, basically. Mm. So if, if you're in an environment where the moment you say something wrong, everything about you is wrong, mm -hmm. then there's nothing you can say that will change their mind, basically. Mm -hmm. And there's people who won't give you a good faith discussion about it. And there's basically what people would call trauma-informed conflict resolution. Mm. So a form of trauma-informed conflict resolution would involve you meeting the person where they're at, speaking to them in good faith, so not immediately thinking that whatever they're saying is to try and manipulate you or whatever, treating them like a human being, basically. Mm. And I, I was when that started being pointed out to me and how it was so hypocritical, I was in disability advocacy when this finally came about because of being diagnosed with those disabilities. And I was like, oh, I want to get part of, I want to become part of this community. 
it made me realize exactly how hypocritical I was being. Mm. So that's that's what made me start thinking about this this isn't the way to handle things and mm. What a monumental change. Yeah. I realized that I was part of a cycle of cycle of um abuse, cycle of trauma, whatever you mm. want to call it, where I was abusing other people, bullying other people for not meeting a certain set of standards. And because I was doing that to them, often they would then go and do that to other people. And especially mm -hmm. in a community where everyone has sort of the same sort of standards and same sort of goal that they're trying to meet, then other people would see me doing it and then they would think it was okay to do other to, to do to other people. So mm -hmm. that's sort of my main gripe with social justice culture at this time. Wow. I mean, that's a huge story of growing up. It sounds like you had the predisposition to develop borderline traits. You had the environmental factors and then perhaps the genetic traits. And then life didn't help. And you you got involved in social justice. I'm imagining that that felt protective or validating or like a place that you could belong, a place that you could know what was true and right and an explanation, a worldview. And I can imagine all of that giving you some comfort or security. But then as you matured, you recognized that you were engaging in this really black and white thinking that left out other people's humanity that flipped the switch from good to evil that that sort of borderline switch the moment someone did something that conflicted with your beliefs about what it was to be a good person and when that happened whenever that switch got flipped you immediately felt justified in acting out your anger and eventually you matured out of this and realized like you said that it was hypocritical and that it was actually making things worse, that you were feeding into cycles of polarization and drama and that you were missing out on something in the process. You were making your mental health worse and everyone else's mental health worse. You said that it was traumatizing and I, I can completely see that. One, one of my main gripes with the social justice worldview is that it's cynical and it breeds paranoia and mistrust, right? If you believe you live in a world where the vast majority of people are on the wrong side of history and you're on the right side of history, that's a lonely world. That's a scary world. It's unsafe. And you're continuously re-traumatizing yourself, not by necessarily having actual traumatic experiences, but by framing the experiences you're having of life as the experiences of moving through a world that's always unsafe, that's out to get you, or that's victimizing other people. And it's just, I don't think it's good for mental health because there's just so much unknown in life. There will always be more unknown than known. The idea that you can control how people see you, obviously, we will never know how most people see us. The idea that you can know what people are thinking. We will never know what most people are thinking. But caring for our mental health involves filling in those blanks with things that are neutral or positive, right? So for instance, 
sometimes if I'm working with, let's say, a woman who has trauma around men, the the tendency would be if you see a man you don't know to assume that he's dangerous or violent or cruel or uncaring. And then you feel the way that you feel when you're around those kind of people, even if it's just a stranger next to you at the grocery store. And then you, you wonder why you're depressed, right? So part of the sort of mentalizing approach there is what's another story you can make up about the stranger? Because you're never going to know what his real story is. So since you don't know, uh, and the story that you're telling yourself is bringing you pain, could you tell yourself a story about how he's there to get dog food for the uh, the rescue dog that he just adopted for his kids, right? Could you tell yourself a story about how he finally found the courage to come out of the closet to his Catholic family after 30 years? Could you tell yourself a story about how his wife has cancer? I mean, there are so many stories you could tell yourself that would help you feel more empathy toward the stranger. And when you tell yourself those stories, you feel safe, maybe you feel tenderness or compassion, and your mental health is better. And either way, you still don't know this person. But there's just such a huge overlooked component in the social justice worldview. And I'm just so impressed that you were able to kind of think your way out of this, to realize what you're doing to yourself and to other people, and to recognize that you can create a better world through treating others with dignity and through not assuming the worst and through trying to understand when there is a difference in worldview. When someone says something that you think might be problematic or offensive, and and that's also how we learn and grow. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. I hear that you feel like I'm giving you too much credit, and that's fine, but you say you didn't think about this yourself. You read things online, but it was also reading things online that had introduced the other ideas as well, like the you know the forums you were in when you were twenty one that we were talking about earlier, right? But it, it seems to me like you were open because there are a lot of people who are social justice warriors who can hear any amount of criticism and just continue to feed that criticism back into their existing worldview and and double down on that. So I do want to at least give you credit for your openness to reconsidering the ideas that at that time were a pretty big part of your identity. I think the reason that opened me up to it was being part of being canceled myself. Mm. Um, And it was that when I was in the disability community, I was part of a group of people that were publishing articles for a website, another group of people within the same advocacy spaces, basically, they didn't like the name of the website. The short version is that uh, it used the word Asperger's in it. And within autistic self-advocacy, the word Asperger is very, very controversial. They, They basically claimed that it was honoring a Nazi because of the claim that 
you know, he was complicit with the Nazi regime. So it was anti-Semitic and it was ableist because if you're referring to yourself as having Asperger's, you're essentially saying you're high functioning. And that means that you think you're better than the people who are low functioning, quote unquote, low functioning, stuff like that. It was, it was, there were a lot of claims like that. So because the word was in the name of the website, we got canceled. And what I learned from that is that once you're canceled, you can't do anything right ever. Anything that we posted was immediately up for greater scrutiny than anything that they said. Any counter arguments that we made about how, you know, some people within the movement, they grew up with the word Asperger's and it was their diagnosis from when they were children and they don't have to give it up and it doesn't mean they think they're better than anyone and stuff like that. None of those arguments were good enough for them. Basically, it was either you get rid of the name or that's it. And it also meant that when I tried to have conversations one-on-one privately with people, they would just dismiss me and the people who had more influence in the movement were clearly perpetuating this culture of this is how this is how we think the movement needs to go. And if you're not on board, then you're basically just as bad as anyone else. Mm. You're the enemy. You're no longer part of the community. So I think that's what made me open to hearing criticisms of it because I had experienced it so I could relate Mm. to what they were talking about. That must have been... Well, I'm so curious how that was for you to go from one side to the other because when you viewed yourself as being on the side of truth and justice... You felt justified and righteous in attacking and canceling others. And then unexpectedly, you found yourself on the other side of that, where now you, who in your mind was on the side of justice, now you were being told that you weren't on the side of justice and you felt attacked and there was no willingness to give you the benefit of the doubt or to consider any nuance. There's just this very black and white thinking that must have felt like such a shock to you to suddenly be excluded and treated that way. It was, it was that whole, as soon as you're canceled, there's no good faith. Mm. It's everything you say is bad faith. So when I tried to have conversations with it, what those people would say later was that, oh, you were just mad at us. You were just trying to get us to support your website. You know, it had nothing to do with me actually having feelings about it and feeling like, you know, they were, I was being bullied Mm. or feeling like they were, weren't representing me or anything. It was, you're just a bad person. And, you know, Mm. everything is about, you know, you, they, I don't know. It wasn't very human. They weren't recognizing the humanity in other people. Well, I hear in that, that they're attempting to control the narrative and Mm -hmm. they're, skewing and twisting everything about you to fit this narrative that's very uncharitable. Did that remind you at all of how you were treated when you were in an abusive relationship? Yes, it did. And what it very much reminded me of was being bullied as a child. So when I was a child, I was... I was almost canceled. I was canceled by my school. Um, 
not by my school, but like by almost all, not, it felt like almost all of the kids, or at least there were kids in every single grade, even all the way up to grade eight, there were people who were like three year, two or three years younger than me that were still bullying me. And it felt like it was everyone. My mom told me a story of me. She was at my door as I was coming off the bus, the school bus coming home. She could hear the entire bus chanting something at me, basically, as I was getting off the bus, distraught by the fact that they're all targeting me. And so it didn't feel like it was just people my age. It felt like it was everyone. And what it reminded me of was when I fought back, me fighting back was more fodder for them just to make fun of me more to either laugh in my face because I was standing up for myself or mocking the way that I was responding to them. And I, I think that's, you know, based on what I know about trauma, what's really what I was I Gabor Mate or Gabor Matt that said that, um, what is really traumatizing for someone isn't really the event itself, but being left alone with it mm -hmm. and not having not having someone to share it with, not someone having someone to process it with. So yeah. when children especially are left alone with something to deal with it on their own, that's what really traumatizes them. Yeah. So that's what it reminded me of, that whole it being inescapable. Mm. Where nothing that you you can't do anything to make mm. them change their mind. They have to they would have to change their mind in order for them to be open. They, they, need, they would need to be open to you. Mm -hmm. And the only way that they would be open to you, to treating you and, and having a good faith discussion with you is if you did what they wanted you to. And even then, the owner of the website even changed the name. They just said that the new name was just as problematic, <laughs> even though it didn't have the word Asperger's in it anymore. So it's crazy making. And there's this common theme of being told who and what you are and other people acting like their story about who and what you are is more valid than yours. So destructive. Mm -hmm. And actually, I see that a lot with the, the gender arguments now when I'm talking about detransitioning. And when I talk about my experiences with trans healthcare, I'll say something like, oh, I think we need more safeguarding. And people will come at me and say, oh, you just want to get rid of transitioning for everyone. And I'll say, nope, that's not what I said. And they'll just come back and say, yep, that's what you want. And that's that's the part that's just, you know, <laughs> that's the point where you just need to block them and move on. Because yeah. if you can't, if you can't get them to at least have a, good faith argument then what what's even the point right but yeah that's the part that is super frustrating is the other people putting what they think you are on you they're acting as if you're acting in bad faith but that's a projection because clearly they're acting in bad faith and i just i cringe when i hear phrases like oh you just want this or you just that because I've also been in an abusive relationship and I heard so much of that, you know, in including ridiculous things. I mean, I, I got accused of cheating on him with women and I'm straight, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. you just want to sleep with everyone, including your friend. So and so it's like, but, but when you're living in that, 
and that's your primary experience of other people, whether you're a kid and it's everyone on the bus or you're trapped in an abusive relationship with someone who has all these tricky ways of keeping you from leaving the house and, and it's just their narrative being blasted at you over and over. I mean, those are different iterations of it. But I mean, that must have been so eye-opening for you to find yourself being treated that way by people who you thought were your friends and allies, you thought shared the same values as you, and then to basically be excommunicated to see the the harshness that must have been a really yeah. dark night of the soul for you. It yeah, it was it was probably the I'm gonna say the the last few years when I was in it was definitely the most difficult, but also with the most growth happening. Mm-hmm. Because over time I would take conversations that I had had and I I have word documents where I'm going through every single thing they said and writing, this is why they're wrong, this is why I'm right, kind of thing, where I'm just sort of tearing everything apart. And I'll even, you know, see things that I said and we go, go, I was wrong here, you know, I I overreacted Mm -hmm. at this point, that sort of thing. But it was the only way to really combat that crazy making Mm -hmm. part of it, where they're making me feel like I'm, you know, they're making me feel like I'm crazy. It's it is gaslighting, but it, they accused me of gaslighting. So you know, right. it was that sort of horrible, you know, Darvo deny and accuse and reverse victim and offender sort uh, of thing. Where yeah, you know, I was suddenly the bad person and they were the good person, even though they were publicly shaming right. me and the other people who were involved. So. Yeah. Whatever. I, I'm so glad that you have that tool, that you had that tool to get yourself through that time because you know you're not going to get that validation from the person you're arguing with. And I think it's so important to be able to separate yourself from the situation and not give the other person the power to validate or invalidate your perspective, but to really just break it down logically until you've been able to uncrazy make ungaslight yourself and sort out what you know to be true that's a tool that i teach my clients who are dealing with these crazy making abusive people is stop arguing with them and do this work yourself on paper well you know on a document or with a friend or therapist that you trust go through every accusation if you need to and pick it apart And it can be helpful even to have a list of manipulation tactics so that you can, (laughs) oh, okay, that's that's Darvo, right? That's projection. That's uh, straw manning to help yourself get that clarity and extricate yourself from the situation. And then you change tactics. You go from trying to argue and defend yourself with someone who clearly doesn't want to hear you to thinking more strategically about, okay, this person has shown me their true colors and their approach and what I can and cannot count on them for. Now, how do I extricate myself from the situation strategically with my head on straight? So mm-hmm. so you had talked about how your trans journey started at 21. Now you're talking about the social justice phase. So where are we in time here? So when I'm talking about when I got canceled, that was in the last three, three, four years. It was in the last three years of identifying as trans. 
And what happened was closer to the end of it was when I was like, you know what? When I was part of the trans community, this is the exact same culture that I was in. Mm. You know, I I was then in disability culture, but like disability advocacy culture specifically, but it reminded me of exactly, it was the exact same type of thing. It was um, identitarian. So people were given credibility based on their identity rather than actually having credentials. Mm-hmm. So with within the trans community, when I was part of it, the more oppressed you were, the more likely, I mean, the more that people would say, oh, we need to center these people's voices. So uh, even though I was so uncomfortable with being a woman, if you're in the trans community and you're a straight white trans man, you're still going to be sidelined, basically. <laughs> you know, instead of actually gaining any autonomy, basically, you're just, um, you, someone told me once, um, well, not told me, but they posted on Tumblr, oh, us trans men, we got male privilege handed us handed to us on a silver platter. And I'm like, oh, really? We did? I don't think so. Because <laughs> uh, any privilege that we get from appearing male is taken away immediately as soon as they know that you're not actually male. So it's it's like how how far does this go? Because it it seems to me like the further this goes, you you end up with finding that one person out of seven billion who is a black pansexual disabled trans help me out here what other minority categories can we throw at this neurodivergent i guess that is part of disability disability but Mm -hmm. fat right people say you know being fat is is also fat phobia is another oppression right stuff like that and we could talk about the idea of healthism i think i want to talk to someone about that at some point but i mean it's like it's like the a race to the bottom or to the top of, of piling up categories uh, of real or perceived oppression or marginalization that gives a person status. And like you say, it's not based on credentials or I would add, it's not based on what actually forms identity, which is how we relate with other people. <clears throat> it's not based on character. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, it used to be that being a woman, you could claim some kind of minority not minority status but oppressed status right and then it's like well if you're straight and white as a woman then you can't and then okay if you're straight and white and born a woman and you transition to being a man well now you still have too much privilege so your opinion isn't worth as much as if you were non-white or if you were trans and queer and like (laughs) So you you saw yeah. through that, and you decided that wasn't eventually, yeah. And 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 actually, I want to go back in time because you say that was just in the last three years. But you actually say that you stopped taking testosterone five years before you stopped identifying as trans. Can we talk a little bit about the medical transition and detransition and your reasons? Yeah. So I I didn't really go through there either of my surgeries, but so I started testosterone in October of 2010. I had the double mastectomy in January of 2012, so almost 10 years ago at the time of this recording. And then 
in 2016 is when I stopped taking testosterone. And the reason I said five years is because I was off. I was off and on in those six years. So I was, I went off six years after identifying as, as trans, but I was on testosterone for about four and a half to five years in total, not including the months that I went off of it. And part of the reason I went off of it like the first time is because of the acne. I had terrible acne when I was a teenager. And when I went on testosterone as an adult, it was like all that acne came back. It was, you know, it was very much a second puberty. And it was horrible enough that I wanted to go on Accutane mm -hmm. to try and hopefully never have acne ever again. And I still have it. You can see it in this video. So in 2016, I went off of testosterone and, you know, it was less medical reasons and more, I think, social reasons. In 2017 is when I had the psychoeducational assessment where I got all my diagnoses. And the part that I have trouble dealing with and I think other people have trouble understanding is that I had the hysterectomy. I had a partial hysterectomy the year after that. So in 2018. So people don't really understand, well, you had the diagnoses. Why didn't you, why did you still go ahead with another surgery? And I have, I don't have a good answer. The only answer I can think of is I didn't want to have periods anymore. And I didn't want to have to do pap smears anymore because they were just so wildly uncomfortable for me. And in retrospect, I think those are awful reasons to get a hysterectomy. They're, I mean, you know, people... People can do what they want, I guess, but, you know, removing an entire organ that is holding up all of the other organs in there, I, I feel like they didn't really, they didn't emphasize exactly how important that organ is mm -hmm. before they let me have it, have it removed. I think it was just mm -hmm. sort of, they were, they, it, it was part of that whole affirmation process where they're like, oh, you want to get rid of your uterus? We're going to help you, we're going to help you do it instead of sort of thinking, you know, is this the best choice for you? I'm curious about what kind of side effects you experienced from the various medical interventions and how you felt overall, physically and emotionally. So testosterone, a lot of people that I know that have gone on testosterone that were trans or detrans have said that their libido skyrocketed after being on testosterone and mine did not. And I'm not sure why I had a very, very, and do now still have a very, very low libido. And it did, I think it went up like a little bit, like there was a little bit more of, of an interest in sexual things after being on it, but it just, it was never, it's never something that's been at the forefront of my mind. So I don't relate to that, but I know that's something that most people, most people I've experienced from what I've understood from them. Another side effect was acne, which I mentioned before. And then the side effect that uh, I liked at the time. And then when I detransitioned, I realized that I prefer the way I am now. But when you're on testosterone, it's very difficult to cry. And it's sort of, it's almost like being on an antidepressant in that way. Mm. where being on it, when I'm on antidepressants, I have a much harder time crying and accessing my emotions, basically. But when I was on testosterone, I went from crying every single day to maybe crying, you know, every couple months. So mm. that was 
one of the major mood changes was that I didn't feel like I was in touch with my emotions the same way I was before mm-hmm. and the way that I am now. And now that I'm off of both, I'm not on, t- I'm not on testosterone and not on antidepressants anymore. Mm-hmm. So. And how has your relationship with your body changed? You said earlier when I was asking about the impact of testosterone on mood that it was hard for you to tell because your mood was so low as it was, but also that you didn't feel in touch with yourself. So I'm curious about, have you? do you feel like you've come home to your body or been able to get more in touch with sensation and emotion? With emotion, definitely. And... I described to my roommate when he was still living with me, I told him that the day that I decided that I was going to detransition, it was almost like there was a persona that I had that was sort of had been in control of me the whole time. And when I decided to detransition, that persona stepped back and the persona that I was when before I was on testosterone, so at age 20 or whatever, came back and sort of took back over. It's almost like uh, some kind of dissociation, I guess, or a little bit of depersonalization, but not not to an intense level. My my roommate did experience depersonalization at an intense level where he felt like he was in a movie all the time, but... That sounds strikingly similar to something that Helena said. I was listening to one of Helena's interviews the other day. For anyone listening Mm -hmm. who's not familiar, Helena is another well-known detransitioner. And she described, I think think she'd started identifying as trans when she was 15 and then stopped, correct me if I'm wrong, or she can correct me when I interview her, but I think around 20 Mm -hmm. is when she stopped. And she said that she felt like she just woke up one day and she was 15 again and just picking up where she left off and felt as though she'd been possessed by something else for several years. Mm-hmm. And I know a few people who have said that, a few detransitioners who have said the same wow. thing, where it was almost like it was almost like someone else was in charge during that period of time. I, I didn't speak too much on my former roommate, but he detransitioned the same year that I did. Probably, I think, about six months before I did. I I think people sort of make the assumption that he uh, influenced me into detransitioning, which, to be fair, is true. He did influence me into detransitioning, but not in a bad way. I think people sort of think, oh, well, you know, he, he made you falsely believe you weren't trans. And I don't think that's true. I think that I was influenced into transitioning in the first place. And seeing someone detransition while living with them and speaking with them every day and talking to him about why he thinks he transitioned in the first place. And and also seeing Remember I said he he had borderline personality disorder, seeing his mental health go completely different mm-hmm. where, you know, he wasn't as angry as he was before and he was experiencing that depersonalization as well, where he sort of felt like he was it was very foggy and that he felt like everything was a movie. And he told me that he he almost very, very, very rarely experiences that anymore. So Seeing that whole change in front of me happening with someone that I cared very deeply about 
it's it's kind of hard to ignore that that mm. is a possibility and i think i think i had doubts ever since i came off of testosterone so you know in the month before i i went off of testosterone i was in that in those years from about i think 2015 to maybe 2000 even last year i had i developed like substance abuse issues with marijuana mm. where i was high pretty much all day mm. so from when i woke up to when i went to bed before i went off of testosterone i had like a weird experience where i was almost it was like a really really vivid daydream about me realizing that i wasn't trans and what would happen if i detransitioned right now this is in 2016 and i was disturbed by it basically but even though i was disturbed by it i still went off of testosterone about a month later so i feel like that's when it started and i've described being involved with social justice culture throughout this and the reason i think the reason that i didn't go all the way and detransition the full way and went all the way back to being and identifying as female i think a lot of it had to do with being so caught up in that and mm. being in social justice and being a good person was about as much a part of my identity as being trans was. Mm. And I just didn't want to admit that something could have gone wrong. The whole process of detransition is very humbling. So you have to admit to everyone that you, you made a huge mistake. So that's one of the things that absolutely fascinates me about you and other detransitioners because I mean just looking at human psychology more broadly we do not like to admit that we made a mistake and the sunken cost fallacy is real I don't know if you're familiar with that term but you know, mm -hmm. the, the tendency, as they say, to throw good money after bad, that once you've invested in something, whether it's financially, you've invested your time, energy, hopes, dreams, reputation, you are incentivized to keep convincing yourself that that was the right move. And it's really hard to reach a point, even after there's a lot of evidence that maybe it's never going to pay off. It's really hard to admit that to yourself because then you you have to kind of admit defeat and realize that, well, you have to face your disappointment, maybe guilt, shame, or embarrassment, and realize that everything you've invested, it's not coming back. You're never going to get that time back. You're never going to get that money back. You have to start over. Maybe you lost some things in the process. I, I think people mm -hmm. resist that for good reason in all kinds of situations, including people who have nothing to do with any of this gender stuff that's going on right now. And to, to actually reach that moment of facing a sobering reality, that not only have you invested in something that's not working out for you, but you've made significant changes to your body and your reputation, as well as investing your ideology. Like, wow. I mean, just coming to terms with that, finding the courage to face that, I, I think that's so powerful. And I think that all of us have so much to learn from the the humility and the courage and the sobriety that it takes to really face that. It was difficult. And I guess one of the more disappointing parts of it at the end of the day is that 
you can you can say that you're going to detransition and when i did so i mean i got private messages from some family members and from some friends that are like it's all good i'm going to support you through this and then some of those same people turned their back on me five or six months later when mm-hmm. i started talking about hey and I've thought a lot about this now, and I think that the healthcare process that I went through, I think they kind of did me wrong here. And then, you know, suddenly, now that I'm speaking against the narrative, then they're not going to support you anymore. That's it. Mm. End of story. Now you're transphobic. So I did expect it. There were, and there were people that I knew it was going to come from. There were certain people where I'm like, I know. I know who's going to be okay with this and who's going to turn on me. I, you know, I kind of had an idea based on how they behaved within social justice. But I didn't want it to happen, and I think that's why it took so long because you know, when social justice is so much part of your identity, that's you know, that's who all your friends are and you know, I I had a carefully curated echo chamber of all of these friends who existed, who um, had the exact same opinions as me, basically. And, you know, I made friends based on their ideologies. I did not make friends based on shared interests. Our mm-hmm. shared interest was social justice. And now mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, and now I'm turning my back on that, so. Mm. Your shared interest was, yeah. I mean, in some ways it's like trauma bonding. It's about reacting to something negative together and feeling like you're this oppressed group together rather than when you say shared interests it's like rather than having let's say a hobby like coming Mm -hmm. together around gardening or woodworking or skiing i i personally am of the mindset that everybody needs a hobby in fact i'm of the mindset that everybody needs a hobby that's social a hobby that's solitary a hobby that involves your body a hobby that involves your mind a hobby for every season. I just think we need to enjoy our lives and and interact with our our senses and our body and and the world and all of those things are constructive and they're coming from that internal locus of control of having something positive that you're interested in pursuing. And I think it's unfortunate that for a lot of people nowadays their hobby isn't actually about creating anything. It's more about having that shared sense of identity and belonging around being opposed to something that you may not really fully understand. And I hear that you were in this carefully curated echo chamber, and I heard earlier you talking about the social influence of your your friend, your roommate. But I, I got, I've gotten the impression so far that he was really your closest friend. He was a person you actually had a personal relationship with. Whereas when you describe the other relationships that you had at the time in, in the social justice world, well, first of all, were these people in person or online friends? And how close were you with them? So I had friends that were local and I had a few friends that were online friends, mostly, you know, one friend or a couple friends I went to go meet in person eventually. The thing that was different about my roommate was that he was not in social justice at all. Hmm. Even though he identified as trans, he identified as trans for eight years, but he had no connection to really to social justice at all. And he was much more into like philosophy. So he'd be thinking about stuff like that. And we would have conversations about that. Our, 
that was so our shared interest wasn't really an interest it was like a shared experience of being transgender but we had very little else in common to be honest and but for some reason that made it a good strong relationship because he was the person that I learned how to disagree with mm. he was someone that I learned that we can have a different opinion at the end of the day we don't have to agree with each other but we can still care a whole lot about each other so that's when so you say powerful. he sounds like the closest that's why he was the closest is because it was safe to disagree with him he wasn't the type of person that was gonna you know call me a bad person and mm -hmm. then stop speaking to me just because I disagreed with him on something. I mean, you said that he at one point was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and so were you. And we've talked about how for people with BPD, it's really difficult to hold the good and the bad. It's really difficult to have constructive disagreement and still maintain a sense that this is fundamentally a good person and we can have a relationship that has ups and downs and differences, but treat each other with respect. That's really hard for people with BPD. So there's something really touching for me about hearing that together you were able to develop this new skill in your relationship. Not all of our um, arguments went well. There were quite a few that just did not go well at all and ended up in screaming matches. And, you know, we had, you know, not very many, but there was at least one hole in the wall in my house. Things got better over time, and it was something that we learned together because we cared about each other. I don't know. It was it was uh, probably one of the relationships that I've been in that has taught me the most. It, it's taught me more resilience than other relationships have. And it's been the most productive, really. It's been more productive than any relationship I had with someone based on being within social justice, really. So... It was good in that way. You brought up resilience earlier in our conversation. And now as we're nearing the end, you've brought it up again. And I recall the first time we spoke, which was not a recorded call, you'd mentioned wanting to talk about self-determination theory. And so I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you want to talk about resilience and self-determination theory and really what you've learned about having good mental health. Yeah, so self-determination theory was like sort of um, an idea that was proposed by two scientists, DC and Ryan, and it involved, they did these experiments where they would have people do, for example, puzzles, and then they had one group that would do puzzles for money if they did it fast enough, and then the other group, they didn't offer money. It was just sort of no incentive. And... Out of those experiments, they eventually came up with these three intrinsic motivators. So they realized that the people, the people who they asked to do these puzzles for no money, when they had a five minute break, they kept doing the puzzles because they were enjoying it. Mm -hmm. But the people who they paid to do it stopped during the break. They didn't want to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. So what one of that was one of through that, they learned that one of the things that people like is autonomy, basically. So they're enjoying, once you're being paid for something, you, it's, you've removed the autonomy from them. Mm. They're doing it 
because someone else is rewarding them for it and mm -hmm. they're not choosing to do it on their own. There's mm -hmm. almost a part of it where they're controlling you by putting in that incentive. But anyway, the three intrinsic motivators were autonomy, so that ability to make choices for yourself, what they called relatedness, which is like the feeling that you belong somewhere and that other people understand you. And the third was mastery. One of the reasons that people learn how to do, learn how to play an instrument, for example, is mastery. People do that on their own because, you know, they just enjoy seeing themselves get better and enjoy the process of, of just getting good at something. And I related those three ideas to why people sort of find themselves within social justice culture or hmm. acting within cancel culture because it gives them that almost an illusion of control. So it's not, it's not real control, but you feel like you have control of, of, over other people. I think that sort of relates to autonomy where you're, you're, you know, if the world is the way that I want it to be, then I'm going to be able to make the choices that I want to make, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. But it, it provides that. And then another part of it was mastery, because when you're in a community like that, if you learn all the rules, all the social rules, and you say all the right things, mm -hmm. then, you know, you've mastered it and you feel, you know, you feel like you've become a good person and that there's that sense mm -hmm. of achievement, I think. Mm -hmm. And then finally, of course, the belonging, where you feel like, oh, all these other people understand me because we're all oppressed in the same way, I guess, or we're all in this together and we're all working towards something mm -hmm. together. At the end of the day, a lot of that is just an illusion because as I said before, with the attachment, you know, you can't form a real connection with other people if you're afraid that they're going to turn on you when you say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so it gives sort of the feeling. I think that's why people get caught in it is because you feel like all of those intrinsic needs are there, but they aren't really there. It's just sort of a, mm. there's a, it's a smoke screen. Mm. It's not, it's not really, it's not truly fulfilling you. Mm. Yeah. Those are my thoughts on self-determination theory. That's really insightful. And I love how you talk about the importance of belonging and having a sense that one is a good person. And the social justice narrative really centers the idea of power and the worldview is that everything is about power, people wanting power, people having or not having power, as if that's our primary motive. There's not really a lot of science to back that up or philosophy or psychology, but the theory that you're presenting sounds pretty sound to me. I think we frequently underestimate the need for belonging. That's such a powerful motivator, just like shame or being ostracized is a powerful disincentive. And I intuitively grasp the importance of autonomy and mastery as well. So it's very important that we have a sense of belonging and that we have a sense that we're a good person and others see us as a good person. And I think that's a huge motivator for people to get involved in social justice or any kind of activism, wherever they are on the political spectrum or whatever issues it is that they care about. And I think it's very easy to mistake belonging to one of those groups or having a sense of certainty about your beliefs. It's easy to mistake that for 
being a good person, which is an important desire, rather than to recognize that the, the fundamental desire is the desire to be a good person, to be perceived as a good person, and to belong. That's that's the emotion or the need that's at the core uh, of so many things, right? And then from there, given our beliefs and worldviews and our social context, we form a philosophy around what it means to be a good person or what we have to do to belong. And then, and then we think the worldview is primary when really these these are the driving motives that are that are so human. And I think that if we're going to help people to detach their sense of identity from having to belong to a group like this, then then we need to get to the root of some of these fundamental human needs, right? That that there can be belonging and that mm-hmm. you can be a good person, you can have autonomy, you can master things and it doesn't have to be dependent on membership in this particular type of group with this particular type of worldview, especially if you're noticing that there are things you disagree with or ways in which it's it's counterproductive for your sense of well-being. So when I think of those three core needs and resilience, I think about, you know, to bring it back to hobbies, right? Hobbies are something that can give us all of those, right? So when you talked about the study, People were more motivated to engage in the activity when they weren't being paid for it, even though it was the exact same activity. So it's not even about how intrinsically rewarding the activity is in and of itself. It's the mindset that we have about the activity, that I'm pursuing this because I'm enjoying solving this puzzle or building this thing or fixing this problem. That's intrinsically rewarding for our need for autonomy and mastery, right? And then that our need for belonging can come not from adhering to black and white thinking or rigid rules or claiming identity using labels, but that we can belong based on something deeper and more natural. And that's that's it's infinitely more comforting and grounding in this world to have a sense of belonging that's based in shared interests, that's based in character and personality and interactions over time, you know, humor and activities together giving and receiving of compassion and support. There's so many things that build relationships, that build a sense of belonging that's much more solid than the sort of fragile belonging of, as long as I'm saying the exact right things, this group approves of me, but the moment I say the wrong thing, I'm ostracized. So I really appreciate you bringing in those points. Was there more that you wanted to say about resilience? I have been thinking about resilience a lot more lately because it's part of not being on antidepressants Mm -hmm. for me. I officially quit smoking weed earlier this year. Weed is legal in Canada. That was another thing that I I felt was, both of them I felt were things that sort of were numbing rather than allowing me to feel my feelings and work through them the i think the compulsion to not feel those feelings was holding me back and that was something that i had to deal with in the last 10 years was and i think i think actually you know identifying as trans was part of that too was another another way of avoiding something that was sort of inevitable that being Mm -hmm. the material reality of being a female person just sort of trying to avoid that, you know. So throughout it, I learned, you know, my main 
primary coping mechanism is escapism, Mm. any type of escapism, whether that's, you know, some kind of drug that's helping me not have to deal with emotions or stuff like that. But those things, relying on them was not helping me sort of build more resilience and being off them and sort of facing things head on and moving out of your comfort zone, things like that are, are what did help with resilience. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you found the courage to face things head on and really self-examine and notice this tendency to want to check out of your life, but you realized wherever you go, there you are, you're going to have to deal with yourself at some point. So you've just embraced that. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer. We've uh, had a really long conversation and we've covered so much ground. What else would you like people to know? It's a very broad question. I I think my my belief is that there's going to be more detransitioners in the next five years, especially because, you know, I think the concept of being trans really exploded in 2015, 2016. We're going to start seeing a rising number of of detransitioners. I mean, I I always say I could be wrong. I could be wrong and there could not there might not be a rising amount of detransitioners, but I don't think I'm going to be wrong. I think I'm I think that's what's going to happen. As that happens, I hope that other people are going to be open to listening to those people and being open to learning that that there's a possibility that the narrative that we have around trans healthcare might not be the correct one, that we might need to do something different. And I hope that more society accepts that people who are in medical professions, they're people that we're meant to trust, they're, that are supposed to give us the correct information, that are supposed to provide us with alternative options and so on. And right now they're, they are not providing alternative options. They're, you know, saying that medical transition is the best option, the only option for some people. They'll say it's the only option. Yeah, I I, I hope that they're going to move towards something that involves a lot more assessment. It seems like they're going the opposite way. They used to have a lot of assessment, and those assessments, as I mentioned before, they weren't great. We could have a different type of assessment, one that talks more about exploring your reasons for wanting to transition, exploring where the root of your dysphoria is coming from and stuff like that, rather than checking off boxes to see whether you're fit close enough to looking like a female or a male or acting like one or dressing like one. So, you know, I hope that we move towards a middle ground instead of the the mainstream activism narrative right now is less referrals, less letters, more immediate access. You know, I've I've heard the most radical opinions being like, oh, I think puberty blockers should be available over the counter. No, no, they shouldn't. That's uh, it's a bit too much. Well, and puberty blockers have even worse long-term medical consequences than cross-sex hormones. <laughs> Could do a whole episode yeah, talking to Billboard Chris about Lupron. <laughs> we're only just hearing about it too. So, I mean... In terms of gender and gender medicine, we're only just hearing about it. But, you know, there are even adult women that are suing that had precocious puberty who are suing the the makers of Lubron. So, yeah. Well, 
Thank you so much. That was all very clear and reasonable. And I, I agree. I think it's it's quite clear that we can expect to see a huge wave of detransitioners in the next five to 10 years. And that's one of the reasons that I'm doing these interviews. You know, there are podcasts that are focused exclusively on gender and they're wonderful, like Gender A Wider Lens and Transparency Podcast that you were on. It's produced by the Gender Dysphoria Alliance. There's some some great coverage of gender issues going on right now, but my podcast covers a lot of topics and I definitely want to bring in detrans voices and detrans stories because I think all of us, regardless of how interested or not uh, we might be in gender issues, need to understand that, like it or not, detransitioners are here and we need to understand this experience. It's a brand new type of experience. And I think that the mental health field and the medical field aren't really prepared to uh, properly understand and support the detransitioners to come. So I really appreciate that you and some of the other folks who are speaking with me who detransitioned fairly early in the grand scheme of things and you know what we're going to see in the decades to come that you are sharing your story even though it may not be fun it's it's could be painful and vulnerable and I know you you don't love speaking you say you're more of a writer so I appreciate you sharing your story so where can people find your writing and find more about you my blog is at somenuanceplease.substack.com. So I don't think I need to spell it, but some nuance, please. Um, after, mm-hmm. and that's what I, I chose that name after, you know, so many years of black and white thinking is like, you know, we need some nuance. Mm-hmm. So some nuance, please.substack.com. That's where most of my writing is. There, you know, I'm sort of started writing almost like a memoir type thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe that will be something people will see in the future. Fingers crossed. Other than that, that's really the only spot where most of my writing is available. Great. And if they can they follow you on Twitter? Yep. Um, same username, some nuance please, but the that name was too long, so it's actually some nuance PLS. Got it. Okay. Well thank you so yep. much for being so generous with your time and your story today. I hope it's not I too late you for you to walk this your dog. Episode of you must be some kind of therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at sometherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.